0: We've been honored and fortunate to have spoken with several current and former presidents and prime ministers here on PolicyCast, but today may be the first time we speak with a potential future head of state. Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and today we're joined by Fatimo Daib. Daib is currently a 2015 mid career Masters in Public Administration Mason Fellow here at the Kennedy School. But perhaps more importantly, she's also getting ready to mount a bid for the presidency of her home country, Somalia. Mrs. Daib, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for uh, inviting me. It's actually a pleasure to be here. I understand I'm one of the, if not the only, student that has ever been invited Th- to this. This
0: is correct. You're the f- <laughs> the first, but I'm sure not the last. Uh, so I'd like to get into a bit of your backstory uh, your family's from Somalia, but you've spent much of your life outside the country, in Finland, actually. Um, you're now setting your sights back on Somalia. Can you tell us a little bit about the journey that brought you to this point?
1: Well, actually, um, my parents are uh, originally from Somalia, uh, both my mom and, and my dad. I was born in Kenya, but I never took Kenyan citizenship like so many other Somalis. My My parents left Somalia to look for greener pastures and they thought that that pasture would be in in Kenya and so that's where they went and that's where I was born and I like so many other Kenyan Somalis and Somalis in Kenya suffered um, because of the policies that the Kenyan government had and and so my family was targeted in 1988-89 like so many of the Somali business community and we were forced out of Kenya so when I went to Somalia I was actually a refugee and I held a a Red Cross refugee card (laughs) and in in, in Somalia and so in 1990 that's when the war broke out and we had no other alternative than to leave the country my mother had three children she had three surviving children before before she had me she actually lost 11 Mm -hmm. children so I was her first um, child to survive and, and, and let's, how old were you in, in Um So I was around 17, 18, in 1990, when the war broke out. And my mother had to actually sacrifice whatever she had. She had to sell everything that she had to make sure that the three of us got out of, of Somalia. And she, unfortunately, had to remain back. So <laughs> um, I remember um, leaving my mother behind and, and not being able to actually say goodbye to her because it, I wasn't sure whether we were going to go um, and the flight that we took was one of the last flights, air float, flights out of Somalia. So it all happened so quickly, we never had had the opportunity to say goodbye to her. And so we were initially supposed to go to Romania, but a good Samaritan who was on the flight asked asked me, he said, do you, have, um, do you know Romania? I said no I don't and so he looked at what I was wearing and he said you're not dressed <laughs> for winter <laughs> <laughs> and I was like what do you mean? I mean this is good enough <laughs> and, he said, uh, and then he asked me, he said do you, do you know that you can actually get a day visa from uh, from the Russian uh, airport and I said no how much does it cost? 20. I said okay we don't have a lot of money maybe 20 uh, for the three of us, is something that we can afford, mm-hmm. and and that's what we did. Instead of ending up in Romania, we actually ended up going into Moscow, um, Moscow for, with a day visa. But that meant leaving everything that we had behind. We had a, a suitcase where um, photos of my mother, of my father, of my childhood, um, the the school yearbooks, and everything that I had. <laughs> And and so making that uh, quick choice or decision meant leaving everything that I knew, memories from my country and my family behind. So in exchange for that, we were able to go to Moscow and from Moscow to Helsinki. So I remember the first night um, that I spent in, in Finland, we were um, placed in a motel that was in the middle of Helsinki. And I remember laying there and thinking to myself, how many people ever get this opportunity of starting over again and rewriting their lives and, and really, um, because going to Finland was actually like you're given a second lease on life. I didn't have a, a solid educational background. I only started reading and writing at the age of 14. Mm-hmm. And, and and so in other countries um, um, they would have probably given up on me They're like, oh, she's 18, she's old. I mean, they, you can't teach someone of, of that age anything. Mm-hmm. But Finland actually gave me the opportunity to study, to gain emancipation, freedom, because really education is the key to life. And so they gave me that key. And I never looked back from then onwards. The reception in Finland was, in the beginning, a bit shocking because it was a completely different country, mm. different culture, different um, religion and language. <laughs> and um, just as we were shocked, so were the Finns. And I remember a lot of um, uh, Finnish people always asking me or asking us why we came to Finland, why didn't we go elsewhere? And even at the time of our arrival, they wrote a book called Somali Shock. And I think to a certain extent, the Finns are still suffering from that shock. They haven't gotten over it. Mm -hmm. Um, And it will take a while before that happens. So um, I was very excited, um, very eager to learn and to move ahead with my life. And Finland gave me that opportunity.
0: And how long were you there?
1: I was there and i still am there my Mm -hmm. family lives there my husband and my children live in finland Mm -hmm. Um, from 1990 up to now with the exception of when the years that i was with the un moving from one country to the other Mm -hmm. other than that i've been there
0: so what made you refocus your attention back on somalia
1: um the first time that happened was um in 2004 i had had my third born um, a girl child and i remember um I was on maternity leave <coughs> breastfeeding and sitting in front of the television when this image of a Somali mother um, appeared on the on the news. She had been walking for three kilometers to get to the nearest health center, and she had a baby on her back and By the time she reached the health center and they took the baby down the the baby was dead, and I remember sitting there and thinking to myself why why is that and is it fair that she should go through what she's going through while i'm enjoying myself i have everything that a human being can need yet i am able to help because i am a healthcare practitioner i could actually do something about the suffering of that mother and that child And in that instance, as I sat there with my daughter, I actually realized what my mother felt when she lost 11 children. And I saw in that woman the image of my mother and that baby was me. The only difference is that I survived and that baby didn't. And that night I made up my mind I was going to go to Somalia and I started getting in touch with different people trying to see how I could go and help and eventually one of the UN agencies took me in as a national officer and I (coughs) flew to Somalia with my baby left my two other children with their dad and have not have never looked back ever since that was the most gratifying thing I've ever done And I realized that actually my life is a vocational calling. Mm -hmm. The fact that I didn't die like the 11 other children meant I I am here for a reason and I'm here to serve humanity. Mm -hmm. And it starts with charity starts at home. It starts with Somalia. Mm -hmm. And so instead of giving something back technically I want to give something of myself. And that means going back to Somalia, I'm tired of running away. I've run away so many times. The only difference is that this time I'm running back to Somalia, not running away.
0: So I think the uh, popular conception of Somalia is not exactly a pretty picture, Uh when most people think of Somalia, they think of al-Shabaab or pirates. Um, you know, I certainly, I certainly, when I think of Somalia, democracy isn't the first thing that pops up in my mind. Um, it, is that an unfair characterization? Or, I mean, are it seems like you have a, a tall task ahead of you if, if this is your uh, your path.
1: It's very unfortunate, because Somalia is much, much more than Al-Shabaab, than the the pirates, much more than all the suffering that you see, um, that get flashed on your television screens, on your social media. Somalia, to me, uh, means much more than that, because I remember what Somalia used to be like. And I can envision, I can actually feel, I can test, I can... I can feel it in my heartbeat how it can look like and and so I think oftentimes um, when something uh, seems absurd or impossible to understand, then we we characterize it in a way that is easy for us to understand, so I want to. To come back to the issue of of actually democracy somalia has been a democratic society for quite um, a long time Mm. the definition differs of what democracy is (laughs) because it it depends on on where you stand and from which perspective you look at it and the somalis are known for being um, very independent very resilient and and everyone 10 million Somalis each and every one of those 10 million Somalis is a master of their own destiny or that's how they l- they would like to see themselves yeah. and and so um, regardless of class status or, or or wherever wh- wherever you stand in that society you actually have a voice you can you can say what you need to say with the only exception being that if you are from a minority clan or you are a woman or a young person your voice doesn't carry much weight than the, the than the majority
0: it's a pretty large exception I would yeah say. <laughs>
1: so but but nonetheless um even though let's say for example women um uh, might be voiceless, um they actually do have uh, something that is called brambr, it's a it's a way it's a way of getting their voice heard um it's a form of poetry and it's a it's a it's a form of actually um, telling people what you think of of situations and in terms of Al Shabaab and the piracy, depending on who you talk to, for example, um, Somalis will tell you that the pirates are doing a good job. They are there to protect our seas. Because, because of the war and instability, there were countries that came and were damping toxic waste. They were d- illegally fishing off uh, our seas and, and doing a lot of things. And so the pirates actually took it upon themselves to protect these seas. Mm-hmm. And then Something probably went wrong, and they thought that um, this is a means of also making a livelihood. Because you have to remember that these are young, young uh, people, and of the 10 million that we have, almost 46, 47 percent are young people. I mean, ages of 14 to um, 24. Mm-hmm. So this is um, a segment of the population that doesn't, um, hasn't had the opportunity to study. They have not had education. They don't see a way out of the misery that they are living in. And and this is a a means of livelihood. And the same goes for Al-Shabaab. The young people who join this terrorist organization are people that also need to put bread, food, on the tables for their families. And so they are forced, and to a certain extent, sometimes, unfortunately, manipulated by these people to join them. And and so, that unfortunately, what we see now is a result of this protracted um, civil war that we've had in Somalia. Before that, Somalia was a very beautiful country, one of the best countries in Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, we had the best educational system; literacy rates were very high. Um, our women were doing well in terms of um, education. Uh, contributing also to to society and so forth, so I believe that for society to actually recover even after they've gone through such terrible destructive um, times, if it comes back to really looking at what's best for that country and for its people and they put their interests, their own agendas aside, they can actually turn the course of that country. And so I, I, I believe, I sincerely believe that majority of the Somalis are people who are patriotic, they love their country. And if given the chance, they are going to turn it around. There's so many people like me who really love Somalia. And I believe that it deserves better people of Somalia deserve better than they've been getting and it's that belief that is making me go back to Somalia even at the risk. The risks are too many but the opportunities are also too many to count.
0: So, the political situation in Somalia, you mentioned clans before, they're very important to how things are run. Uh, Can you, for those who don't know, um, describe a little bit about the power of the presidency and the importance of of clans and and the rest in, uh, in a power base?
1: This is where the confusion arises from, because even using the term government, is really questionable in Somalia. This is not a government. This is uh, a bunch of men, a bunch of people who were given positions based on their clan. We have four clans and then others, minority sub-clans that have been um, labeled as point 0.5. To me, point 0.5 means that you're a subhuman, you're half a human. So these are the whole, you know, whole beans and then you uh, being the point 0.5, you are, added onto it. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is that power is actually um, um, allocated or political seats um, are allocated according to these clans. And so what you have actually is not a government that is elected and that is for the people and by the people. You have clans sitting there and they elect people based on God knows what criteria they mm-hmm. have for putting these people in those positions.
0: And the clans aren't just political parties, as as we think about they, them.
1: They are not. So this is really, this is not um, governance as we know it. This is something really that uh, is completely different. This notion of going to a polling station and um, voting for someone and then that someone getting into office and then representing your agenda and interests and then you hold them accountable if they don't do that that doesn't apply to the uh, to the um, successive governments that so-called governments that we've had in Somalia. So this um, current administration that is in place came through the clan system and Unfortunately, the clan does not account for women. You'd have to be a man um, in order for you to, to be seen as, 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 as being serious and as, as someone who can actually uh, portray your Klan. Um, so as a result of that, we the women actually um, advocated to get a quarter. In the, in the parliament. So we have a 30% quarter but that hasn't been filled and I doubt it will ever be filled. So even women who come through this come through the clan system. It's, only, it's always the clan that does that. So unfortunately the people that we have in this administration are people who are there who are um, only looking out for the interest of their own clans. They don't look out for the rest of the country and, and what is best For the Somalis, they don't look at that. It's only looking at their own clans. And so 2016, the the reason, one of the reasons why I'm running is that in 2016, we are supposed to have a one-person, one-vote democratic elections, which means I, as a Somali, uh, have the right to run for these elections. If the current clan-based administration were to continue, I wouldn't have that opportunity.
0: So how do you uh, circumvent that? What's your plan?
1: Um, I think we've lost um, the basic understanding of what the clan is actually all about. Even in the religious scriptures, um, it's clearly articulated, stated that we belong to clans so that we can identify, so that we know who we are. And that's as far as it goes. But this thing of really instigating... Um insecurity, fighting um, ethnically cleansing other uh, clans out of areas, trying to say that a country should really be um, federal when we d- actually don't even understand what that means, and to some people it means their own regions where c- their clans would have control over that and and fragmenting Somalia into small small pieces so that it will no longer exist. Uh, is is something that not only worries me but it worries a lot of somalis and I would like to think that the majority of the Somalis are also very worried about the trend that our country is taking and 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 so um when you speak to them from that angle that listen it 's good that you come from a clan, but that isn 't the only thing that um you should be really advocating for mm-hmm. Uh, It's time for us to get away from the clan. It's done nothing for us other than cause misery. The problems we have in Somalia are exactly because of the clan system. You cannot continue to perpetuate support a system that actually is going to completely destroy you. That is going to lead to Somalia no longer existing as a sovereign country.
0: There's a tremendous amount of risk in what you're trying to accomplish, not just politically, but also to your own safety. Uh, There are obviously a number of ways to go about changing the world. Why is running for office in particular so important to you, especially in the face of these very real threats?
1: This is a question that a lot of people ask me, and, um, and I often get told that, Listen, you're a healthcare practitioner. You could just go back and do nursing. Uh, do things that, are, are that you as a woman, you're meant to be doing. This is a man's game. Let the boys play in this field. You just go and do what you need to do, which is basically be invisible. If you insist that you don't want to be invisible, then do things that normally are ascribed to people from of your gender. But I refuse to do that. My question is simply why not? Why shouldn't I do this? Because I think the time has come for us to stop actually (laughs) negotiating for our existence and listening to people tell us what our existence would be like. I love Somalia, I really do. And I love the Somalis. Sometimes the thing that disappoints me is when I look at individual people and the things that they do and I really then become a bit pessimistic. And I don't like being that. So what I've done is I look at the country, I love that country and I love the Somalis collectively irregardless of where they come from and what they are and what they advocate for. Because I have no choice then to do that. And I, I believe that 10 million Somalis deserve better than they're getting. If you have to affect change, and that change means you have to lose your life, then so be it. There comes a time when you will have to stand for what you believe. You put your fears aside. And this is the time for Somalia almost 25 years I've looked from the sidelines complaining, whinging, always assigning the blame elsewhere when the blame lies with us. We are responsible for what is happening in Somalia. Whether we acknowledge that, whether we accept that is irrelevant. We are responsible for it and so I'm taking that responsibility very seriously and that is why. I am going to do what I am doing because I believe in standing up for your rights, for democracy, for peace of mind, for prosperity, for all of these principles and values. And so a coward dies a thousand deaths. I've been dying that for 25 years. And I want to say one thing, the Somali woman dies four times in her lifetime. When she's born, if she survives that, then she is on her way. When she's mutilated, if she survives that ordeal, then fine. half She's halfway onto that journey. On her wedding night, if she survives that, then you can almost see the horizon. And the fourth time is when she has her first child. I've gone through all of that. What more is there that could happen to me? So there's nothing that can stop me from what I'm going to do. Because I look at the people that we have in this administration and I actually do think that compared to what we have and what we've seen, just just maybe, just maybe, I might offer you an alternative that is better than what you've been having all this time. Because I actually believe that Somalia is worth it and we are worth it. I'm tired of being told to keep quiet, to be invisible. I've been that for centuries, that's what I've been, and look what it's led us to. So I can no longer afford to be quiet. That's why I'm I'm going to Somalia.
0: Well, Farmo Daib, thank you so much for being on Policy Cats today. Best of luck in 2016 and beyond. Thank you for having
1: me here. It's been a pleasure.
0: You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School Policy Cast. Produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Follow us on Twitter at PolicyCast.